In the name of the one holy and living God. Please be seated. Way, way back when, when I was first starting to come back to church after a long time away, I used to sit next to a woman who I came to find out was a non-believer. And I asked her, why, why are you coming to church? And she said, where else can I think about the meaning of life or the purpose of life? Where else can I go to think about these things where I'm not driving the conversation, where I'm not in charge, where it's not all just rattling alone in my head? I come to church so I can be challenged. I thought about that. And then I asked, do you have any answers? And she said, no. Sometimes I come and I get more confused. Sometimes I come and I'm uncomfortable. But sometimes I get a sense of direction. I get a sense of where am I out of whack with love or the things that I value and where am I in whack. And I imagine if that person were here today, I imagine she might welcome the challenge of today's gospel. This perplexing and disturbing story where it seems like Jesus is saying, yay, rah, rah, dishonesty. In the parable I just read, the rich man has a manager and scholars understand that at that time, the nature of this relationship would have been that the manager was a slave. And this enslaved man was in charge of collecting rent in the form of agricultural goods. So the rich man hears from a third party that he's being cheated by this particular slave manager and that the manager is squandering receipts. So the rich man, the master, fires him and says, just bring me the books. The manager, in modern language, flips out. The fate of someone who's enslaved, if they are taken from the high position that they could have gotten to within the structure of slavery, for that to be taken away, he knew it meant he'd be sent to hard labor or put out on the streets. So he frantically thinks, what am I going to do? And his only hope that he can think of is to go to the people that he's been squeezing for the master's rent and forgive some of their debts enter into a new relationship with them. And then the rich man praises him when he comes back with these books that don't have the entire amount that this, man, this master has owned. The master praises him for being shrewd. And then it sounds like Jesus is jumping on this bandwagon and saying, yes, good on you. You've been shrewd with dishonest wealth, wealth made from impoverishing others. Could this be Jesus saying, hey, you've taken a step toward caring for others, even if it was out of self-interest. You have bettered the lives of the people who you forgave some of the debt. You've helped redistribute ill-gotten gains, dishonest wealth. Essentially, you've worked the system to make friends and lift everyone up a little bit. And Jesus says in this parable, and I quote, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, 
so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. So is Jesus praising the manager's dishonesty? Does this make sense? It helps, I think, to look at the system, the economic system where this plays out, and it is a system of abuse and a time of occupation by the Romans. And the Romans came into the region to exploit natural resources and exploit the labor of people to enrich themselves. A lot of that was done with taxes, and we hear a lot in scripture of Jesus welcoming the tax collectors. This is not a tax collector. This is somebody, the manager is somebody who's working for a rich person. The rich people followed the Romans into the land, and they lived down around Jerusalem. The poorer people, the people who were subsisting on farming and in agriculture, they lived up north in Galilee. You think about that's where Jesus started preaching, up north in Galilee, with the people who were not empowered. Now, the Romans down south needed wheat and wine and olive oil from Galilee, and so they heavily taxed these farmers. And when the farmers were overwhelmed by the taxes, the wealthy down south came up and said, hey, we'll pay your taxes, don't worry about it. Just give us the deed to your land. Then you can live on as tenant farmers and just give us a percentage of your crop. And this is for low cross. It'll be less than you're paying in taxes. It's a good deal. And you don't have to worry about marketing or sales uh, of your, your product. Just give us a portion as rent. And so then the rich went back, got these crops, sold them for a profit based off of no work at all of having taken these deeds. And the person that collects that rent is that enslaved manager. What we have here is a manager who, when faced with being fired, interestingly, not fired because of something the master proved, fired because someone else came to the, the, the master and said, hey, he's cheating us. So when this, this manager realizes he's expendable and he's going to be fired, that all his work to stay in good graces is essentially for naught, he decides to switch sides, he decides to make deals to make friends with the impoverished farmers. He works the system. And instead of participating fully in the injustice, he takes a step back forgives some debt, and starts working for the unempowered, for the people who are poor. So this is this moment, this small step that this manager takes away from orienting himself exclusively in service of his master, in service of the wealth, step away from that wealth being the ultimate measure of his own worth, he changes from that, from having those relationships with the farmers being based on squeezing as much money as they could get, slips it around to having the money be in service of the relationship, forgiving debts to build community, to enter into a new relationship, a more just relationship. 
And when I hear how this manager is being praised for being shrewd, I wonder if what we're hearing is an acknowledgement from Jesus that the economic system that they were in, and I dare say that we are in, I actually boldly say that we are in, is a mess. Pervasive poverty exists as a result of practices of the privileged and of wealth. And when wealth is a means and an end unto itself, try to get as much as you can. What if we were hearing Jesus say, yeah, use those shrewd business skills, use your street smarts to serve one another. And even if the wealth that you're dealing with is ill-gotten, let's serve one another. Let's lift the burden from the community. The challenge here is to our values. Who is our master? Who are we today serving? Who do we rely on for our identity, for our worth? Is it what we have? Is it what we can get? Are we looking to what we have and can get for our security? And Jesus is very clear at the end, probably the only part that is intuitively quickly understandable in this this parable. He says, you can't serve two masters. They'll come in conflict. You'll end up hating one and serving the other or you'll end up being loyal to one and despising the other. That there is no way long term to try and get our value purely from wealth and acquisition and from the economic system we have and to fully serve God and get our definition of who we are in Christ. That that will at some point come into conflict Jesus is just point blank. You can't serve both wealth and money. And this isn't saying that wealth is evil. It's wealth as an end unto itself. Wealth that does not look at how this is being earned. Wealth that's not looking at, at, at equity and justice for all. We've all seen this play out in a big way during COVID. The COVID period has been called the great resignation. And people have been evaluating what's the meaning and purpose of my work? What's my value? Who am I serving? And while I thought that this was a great resignation from that time when we were in lockdowns and slowly reemerging, it turns out that in the last 10 months, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, in the last 10 months, four million people per month have resigned of their own choice. Not laid off. Four million people a month for 10 months have left their jobs. That's 40 million free will resignations. 40 million people, I mean, that's four Los Angeles cities worth of people who have chosen to leave their work for whatever reason. Most of the research shows it's poor working conditions. It's not having ethical alignment with whatever the business is. It's not fair pay. 
a recognition that the economic system that each one of these 40 million people are in is not as valuable as their own being, their families, their lives. And now the kicker is, of these 40 million people, the ones who found work within that set of people who found another job, 60% of them are considering quitting. There's a tremendous restlessness, tremendous restlessness within how our economy functions. And businesses are scrambling. What do I do? Do I pay them more? Do I reconstruct how we're doing work? Do we work at home? Do we work in the office? Do we do a hybrid? And if I look with my Christian eyes, I see people saying, what's the point? Is this worth it? This time out has been caused, called the great pause. And at home, we were asking a lot of these questions. It happened at the low end of the economic spectrum, people working for sometimes less than minimum wage and jobs as servers and restaurants, as bus people, as dishwashers, up through our healthcare system, healthcare organizations having trouble hiring anyone to do be aides to nurses. It's happening in corporate America at all levels of corporate life. And I think it was more than just the great pause that's causing these questions. I think it might have something to do with the threat to all of our lives that COVID brought. We all, especially in those first months, faced the very real prospect of our own deaths or deaths of people we love. And some of us did lose people. I mean, just that thought, if we go outside, I might get the virus and die. That's a pressure somewhat akin, and I would say more acute than this manager in our story's pressure of, if I don't have my job, I am going to die. I'm going to be on the street. I'm going to be ditch digging. So we've had this great time of reflection, time of pause, and a time of great fear coming together, and the questions erupt. Who am I serving? There's a theologian, uh, Catherine Tanner, who wrote a book during COVID on Christianity and the new capitalism. And not looking at the capitalism as how things are playing out now with this great resignation, but looking at how it has built over the past 50 years. And she talks about how part of what is broken in our economic system is our focus on short-term gains, on, on making uh, the, the shareholder value be great each quarter, as opposed to a long-term view, is that that has warped our sense of time, warped our sense to the immediate, I have to get it now or else it won't be there. Our urgency to be more productive, our urgency to be working 24-7 and be accept accessible all the time pressures that warp how we see time. God's time is not our time. We are invested, she says, in this world of instability and volatility. And yet, as Christians, we have a horizon of divine stability. 
We have a horizon of divine love, of divine justice, of divine mercy and grace. What if we turn our hearts to that as a source of our meaning? When we are secure in God, secure in God's love, secure in God's forgiveness and justice, we, are, we can then go out and engage with the world more boldly. We can go out perhaps as this manager and start forgiving some debts. We can go out and start working the system towards justice in whatever the realm is. Part of what I like about this passage, and it's hard to find a lot to go yay about. In fact, in Bible study, someone said, gee, this is not the reason that wants to make me go out and go, yay, glory to God. But part of what I do like in this is this acknowledgement of how broken things are. And this acknowledgement that even when we take a little step, even if that step is in our own self-interest to build community, to be more in line with God's love and grace and creating a beloved community of justice, when we take those small steps, that is good. That is what we're called to. The call is to take the risk of stepping away from security in worldly things and have our security in, in, in God and use all our shrewd smarts that we may be using when we're just rooted in the world. Use that to build God's kingdom. Let's be anchored in God's grace, in God's love. Let's be anchored in community where love is our master and God is our master. Amen.